Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is found in 1 John 1.9, familiar verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we, uh, we have to admit, all of us who try to walk near to God in righteousness, even on our best days, it's tainted with sin. Um, even the verse preceding the one I just read says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. God has given us a sufficient and effectual sacrifice for sin. The sinfulness of us believers is shown by the fact that God requires us to continually confess our sins. Let us plead guilty before God. Be humble and willing to know the worst of our case. Let us honestly confess all of our sins to their full extent, relying wholly on the mercy and truth that through the righteousness of Christ. continuing in this uh, sermon series that we already began and didn't even realize we began. A couple Sundays ago was Ascension Sunday. We started in Acts 1, and then last week, Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 2. So I thought we'd just keep right on rolling. Acts chapter 3 here. So Peter here heals and preaches in the name of Jesus. That's the basic uh, point of the, of the chapter. And I'd like to point out a pattern that is uh, strongly present in Acts that we'll see over and over again. Chapter 3 starts a second episode of the same pattern we saw in chapters 1 and 2. And that pattern is this. Uh, It's number one, the apostles are waiting, they're preparing, they're ready for the Holy Spirit to come to them. That's the first thing, the apostles are waiting. I didn't uh, talk about it much, but the second half of chapter 1, where they um, elect a 12th apostle, is one of those stages where they're waiting for the Spirit, and while they're waiting, they do what they can and know what what they know to do. So that's uh, part of that stage. The second uh, stage is the Spirit acts. Jesus uh, pours out the Holy Spirit on the apostles in uh, Acts chapter 2. And the third stage is the apostles respond and act with the Spirit, which means they wind up preaching about Jesus, usually. And the fourth stage is the result. The result is that many believe and others oppose them. And you always have those two responses. So those are the four things. There's there's waiting for the Spirit, the Spirit acts, the apostles respond and act with the Spirit, and then there's the result. So we'll see that again today. And let's just walk through the text uh, one verse at a time here. So the cripple is healed in chapter 3, the first 10 verses. We see that. Uh, So Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray at the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. That's the the standard time of prayer and sacrifice. They're worshiping at the temple. I find that interesting. I'm just going to mention this as an aside, and we, we can discuss it later if you'd like. But remember that the, this, this is after the sacrifice of Christ has been made, right? The veil was ripped in two, torn down, 
Um, the sacrifices offered in that temple are pointing to a sacrifice, Jesus's, that now was already made. And yet they go to the temple at the time of sacrifice. That's intriguing to me. And I think the apostles continue to do that uh, until the temple is uh, destroyed. So uh, the, Peter and John, they go to the temple to pray. Uh, the question here uh, for us application right away is, do you have a set time of prayer? It doesn't have to be 3 p.m., uh, but it can be good to have a time to do important things. Right? It, I don't think it should bind your conscience so that you feel guilty for missing prayer uh, at a certain time uh, in a legalistic sense, but a set hour can remind your conscience. It can help you. Routine serves us very well, and we naturally... Um, schedule things uh, daily or weekly, whatever it is, that are important to us. And so it can be good to schedule times like times for prayer. They go to the temple to pray, and they see this man. He's a beggar. He asks Peter and John for money. Uh, and notice here that prayer and charity go together. Faith and works go together. We go to worship God, and we also give to God when we're there. Uh, but you do have to wonder about the long-term situation here. This guy was, uh, uh, um, what does it say in verse 2? Lame from birth, was being carried. In other words, it's a repeated action. He, every day, they were bringing him to the temple. But you have to wonder about the long-term situation there. Was there nothing the leaders could do for this man? No useful work they could give him or find for him? Uh, long-term dependence like this is usually a bad idea, uh, though a few cases might call for it. So there seems to be a bit of a, a defect in what's happening in the temple. And Peter and John come, and the Spirit is going to fix that. So verse 4, we see that Peter somehow, I think, knows that God is going to heal through him. Uh, that, I, that's what I read in the text there. Peter directs his gaze at him and says, look at us. right? And he says, verse 6, in the name of Jesus, I command you to rise up and walk. The Spirit is revealing his work silently to Peter here in some way. You know, we usually look away from beggars, right? Don't make eye contact so they won't expect anything from us. Peter does the opposite. And I think the Spirit here is directing Peter, letting him know somehow that he's going to heal this man. The lame man himself, he expects to get a bit of money, verse 5. The beggar is seeking uh, money or food. He's not thinking of healing, he's just thinking of survival. And that's very often like us. We get so used to our, uh, our crippling situations that we're in, we're so little aware of God's power to change things, to restore life, to raise up nations. J Jesus gives us more than we expect. And we come to him wanting some problem fixed, some peace over a family dispute or healing from a disease, whatever it is. And those are important things. But God intends to make you an heir of the greatest estate in the world, made up of the whole world. And we keep asking him for a few dollars. Like the lame man, we're often unaware of God's power to restore. But by the Spirit's working, we become aware of his power, as Peter does. Part of the Spirit's strong working here is to reveal this to us, as he does to Peter. So, what do we have to offer the world? What Peter and John have to offer. I don't have silver and gold to offer you, but what I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we have the name of Jesus to offer the world. 
And that name includes all that Jesus is and did for us and offers us. Peter appeals to Christ's authority here, to his strength. By the power of Jesus, who sits on David's throne above, be healed. Now, there's no power in simply saying the name. There's no power in Peter himself. He says that himself later. Peter's just a channel of Christ's strength. But Peter believes, too. Uh, Verse 7, we see that. Uh, He takes him by the right hand and raises him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So Peter is copying Jesus, who took Peter's own mother-in-law by the hand when he healed her. It's fascinating how he uh, imitates that same thing. Verse 8, the man leaps up. The the leaping is interesting. And he walks. uh, And walking and leaping are repeated several times. The man's now using muscles never used before. And immediately they're working. And and he's praising God. Just in verses 8 and 9, it's three times Luke says he's walking, he's walking, he's walking. He's not standing still. This guy's using muscles he's never used before. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's like when you, uh, like um, that someone who gets glasses and doesn't realize how bad their eyesight was, and they're just looking around. Wow, wow, wow. Same thing, but only using his legs. This is something like what it's going to be for us in glory, I think, on the resurrection day, uh, in our souls and in our bodies. There's, there's going to be all these capabilities we never even realized how, how, how much we had. And all of a sudden, we'll be able to use it all. It's a wonderfully joyful, astonishing thing for him. He can't stand still. Perhaps from amazement, he can't stop walking. So he goes into the temple with Peter and John. Now, again, just to pause there, we too, like Peter and John, we're only channels of God's grace to those around us. We are weak. It's Christ's strength that we minister to others. But we can't do that if we don't act in faith, as Peter does here, assuming that what we believe is true and acting on it. We have to grow in confidence of what we know to be true with close study of God's word and and his ways in our lives. Verse 11, the man holds on to Peter and John for a while. Not out of fear, he just doesn't want to let go of the ones who, who made him walk, right? That, that's another thing to apply, I think. We, we, too, ought to be clinging to the means of salvation, right? It's not the apostles that we have with us physically anymore, but we have Bibles. We have parents. We have church members and pastors. We have prayer. We have worship services. We have God's people. We need to cling to those things, that just like this man is clinging to Peter and John. And also notice that there is a change in the means of salvation going on here. This is the hour of sacrifice in the temple. But this miracle of this man far overshadows the sacrifice and the normal prayers. The healed man, the saved man, goes into the temple. But he's clinging not to the sacrifice. He's clinging to Peter and John, living apostles, on whom the Spirit came in the last chapter. That's where God's presence is now. It's a fascinating transition going on. Well, besides being one of the real physical miracles that Jesus did through the apostles, this is also a spiritual parable, I think, of our regeneration. We had no spiritual muscles, no faith to come to God. And God has to give us strength to do so. And the strength of the Son uh, poured out by the Spirit is shown here 
God will do this. We'll talk more about that at the, at the Lord's Supper today. So verses 9 through 11, all the people see him. They recognize him. This is a public event. This man is known. They see him every day. They go into the temple. They know his face like, like the back of their hands. Because every day they see him. And now the same guy, they know it's him. And he's been lame for the last, I don't know, few decades. And now he's praising God, leaping, jumping, walking, hanging on to these two guys they don't know. It's an extremely public event going on. Imagine all the double takes. <laughs> and the town, what? That's what's, that's what's happening. You have Jerusalem residents who walk past this guy, and now they, they see him. He's always sitting outside, never standing. Now he's inside the temple, jumping around and, and walking. What is going on? And Peter uh, takes the opportunity to talk about this. At the end of verse 16, he, he gives the basic answer. Through Jesus, he has given the, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So this is something like another kind of Pentecost in chapter 2. right? Like the wind and the fire of Pentecost, God draws attention to the apostles and to their message again. That's the point of the miracle, to get everybody to, to be looking at Peter and John. Like, what just happened? And then they have an opportunity to speak, and they do. So you see that the proofs of Christ's resurrection don't stop when he ascends to heaven. The apostles' signs and wonders continued for years, making it obvious to all that God was at work in them. And here's the second one after the Pentecost miracle in Acts 2. So Solomon's porch, you'll see, if you look in a Bible, a study Bible map, it's a central hub of temple activity. It's right outside the gate into the temple. There's kind of a bottleneck for the Gentile court into the temple itself. And again, the spirit is acting in a very public way. This was not some isolated corner. And you even see that later in the book of Acts. Uh, I forget the reference right now, but it's, they, they say these things were not done in a corner. Right? This is a very public event. It's raising questions on the street about what is happening that Peter and John are now going to answer. So, verse 12, uh, verse 11 no, 12, sorry, that, that begins. Peter takes that opportunity. Again, to start with, he points away from himself. It's not by his own power uh, that he's doing this. And he doesn't really point much to the healed man either. Uh, verse 13, he uses a common point of reference. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. That, that's, that's his first um, uh, a, a subject of his first sentence. And this was very likely how prayers in the temple were addressed to God. So there's a common point of reference there. Uh, but, this isn't, but this is more than just a rhetorical trick. He's not just, you know, getting their attention. He, he's not just establishing common ground. There is a real connection between Jesus and the patriarchs, right? It's because God made promises to Abraham that he sent and glorified Jesus, He's kept his promises to Abraham by sending Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. So he points to Jesus. You want to know how this beggar is walking around in the temple? Let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> That's his answer. Well, what does he say about Jesus? 
He says this is uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He says this is the servant of God. That, that brings to mind the messianic servant of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He calls him the holy and the just one, in, or the righteous one, in verse 14. These are titles for God, titles for his Messiah. If you remember, the demons in Mark chapter 1 call Jesus that, the holy one from God. Uh, so uh, Peter's asserting that Jesus is Messiah, just like in his Pentecost sermon. The climax there in the last chapter was that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And he's also implying that Jesus is the holy one, that he's God himself. So Peter really crams an awful lot about Jesus in, into the, the first few phrases and sentences here. Uh, the author of life is a fascinating phrase. Verse 15, some versions say prince of life. Uh, the word is uh, founder, originator, pioneer, that, that kind of thing. Think, think of the pioneer of life, right? That, that's uh, interesting. There's another connection with the Spirit there, too. In the Nicene Creed, we say that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, right? Uh, and, and so we have the Son and the Spirit connected there. They're the ones who, who give, who bring forth life. Uh, the pro-life movement. Think of the pro-life movement today. We need to say that, that taking life is an offense against Jesus and against his Spirit, Right? The, because they give life. Uh, to take an infinitely precious gift from Jesus' hands and to just throw it in the trash. That's, that's what's happening. It's not just going against some uh, abstract moral principle. We are offending the one who gave us life. So you have uh, Jesus, the author, the prince of life. It's a beautiful phrase. And then Jesus, uh, Peter, excuse me, also says that Jesus is the prophet foretold by Moses. In verse 22, he says that. Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 18. Uh, that's something else about Jesus. Uh, and all of this, Jesus is not unknown to them. This is only about eight weeks after the triumphal entry, when Jesus healed blind and lame people in the temple. Matthew 21 says that. that we often forget that part of the triumphal entry, but it says when he comes into the temple, he healed the blind and the lame there. And so here, eight weeks later, we have the same thing happening through the apostles. It's a major signal to everyone what's going on. So uh, those are th some things that uh, Peter uses to point to Jesus. And he also points out that they reject him. Uh, beginning around verse 15, they, uh, five ways they reject him really quickly. First, they deliver him up to Pilate. Right? They hand him over and like, take this guy, he's a criminal. Uh, number two, they deny Jesus before Pilate. Right? They say, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, number three, uh, he, uh, they, they deny the Holy One and the Just One. Uh, so again, they're denying the, the God who made them, the Holy One. Number four, they choose a murderer instead of the Messiah. That's a reference to Barabbas. Remember that? Number five, they kill the prince of life. So in all of this, he's making them aware of their sin. And he's doing that in a very specific way, right? He's referring to the trial and the condemnation of Jesus right around 55 days ago before this. And that's important. When, when, we, when God convicts us of our sin, it comes in a very concrete, specific way, usually. 
that we don't just think, oh, I, I, should, I should be more kind in my thoughts to people. Well, I suppose, yes, but there are specific things that we're doing that resulting from our uh, corrupt hearts, and, and God points those out to us. Uh, one thing, going back to Pilate, I wanted to mention, uh, P- Pilate's an interesting one. Uh, notice uh, what he says there, and I know I can't find it. I've got to find this back. Verse 13, you delivered him over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. That's fascinating. Because to the Jews, Pilate, is, he's public enemy number one. Right? Peter cast down their self-righteousness against Pilate here. Much of the Jews' piety was vested at that time in their enmity against this man, Pilate, for his ungodly rule. And I'm going to make an analogy here, maybe you might not like, but it's true. Just like Pride Month in June and the left's agenda today, Pilate pressured God's people to worship pagan gods. It's a very similar dynamic. They were right to be upset about Pilate. Pilate made that kind of pressure. And yet here, Peter convicts the Jews more than Pilate. They were rejecting Jesus even more than Pilate did. Peter's basically saying, look, you have your own sins that sent Jesus to the cross. Don't make yourselves feel self-righteous by looking at Pilate all the time. You yourselves have put to death the prince of life. That's something that Peter's talking here to the Jews. He's not talking to the Romans. And so he convicts the Jews of their sins. It's something we need to keep in mind. We we like to uh, be comfortable and not offend people in person. And so if we're talking to one group, we'll often talk about the other group's sins. And if we're talking to that group, well, then we'll talk about the other group's sins. Peter doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He convicts each of us of our own sins. That's very important. We need to face up to that. Moving on. So, uh, Peter points to the resurrection in verses 13 to 15. He points to Christ's power that heals this man. Jesus is the source of our strength. Uh, Jesus, uh, and he he stops and makes this uh, insertion in verse 16. It's interesting. In his name, dash, by faith in his name, dash, has made this man strong. So it's, it's... this interesting paradox. It's, it's Jesus' person and power that does this. But then he also says, and by the way, you've got to believe. Or, or it's faith in this name that does it. Right? It, God does not save the whole world through Jesus. He saves those who believe. And so Peter kind of makes a qualification there. And that's important. Jesus, when he goes back home to Nazareth, his hometown, he does only a few miracles there because there was little faith there. That's the kind of connection Peter's making here. Faith is a factor. God wanted to glorify Jesus in this way, with this beggar and with the apostles. The Spirit made this known to Peter. So so it's Christ's power that heals. And then we get the exhortation, verse 17 and on. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. That's an amazing statement. After saying you killed the prince of life, now it's, 
we might say it this way today. I don't think this is what he's doing, but we, it feels to us like, well, now Peter's kind of walking it back a little bit. He's not walking it back, but he is encouraging them, saying, this is not an insurmountable problem. That's what he's saying, right? It, it, they, they didn't believe Jesus was God's son and Messiah, and they can change that. You can, you can change your mind about who Jesus is. There's hope there. That's one of the main themes I want to bring today is the theme of hope. It, it, when, when there's a call to repentance, the world often sees that as condemnation and as, as canceling, right? Today we see that as the end. You're, you're done. You're out. Because I disagree with you and so I must hate you. That's not at all the truth. If there's a call to repentance from God, then, then that comes with hope. Because God's calling you to a better way. And you can go that way. And, and, and there's forgiveness and grace. That's the beauty of true repentance. So, verse uh, 18. That what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here again, Peter's throwing more at them about Jesus that they need to hear. It was prophesied that the Christ would suffer. That's Isaiah 53, of course. We know that chapter. And what, but what Peter's doing here is correcting the Jews' misconception of the Messiah as only a powerful ruler. So he's, he's correcting a misperception. He's, he's heading off objections before they even come. Because they're going to object right away. Their first question after he's done talking is, I thought the Christ was going to rule and take over here. And he says, no, read your Bibles again. The Christ is gonna, was going to suffer. That was going to happen all along. So yes, you can worship a suffering Christ. That's what we're called to do. Suffering yet also risen and reigning now. So we need to repent. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, here again, uh, this, this uh, repent means be converted. It means turn back, return. Israel was on the wrong path. They were rejecting and crucifying Jesus. And they needed to turn from that and get back into God's will. That's kind of the two parts of repentance, right? One is to realize the wrong of what you're doing. But the other side of repentance is to turn and go back into God's ways. And to admit that what's wrong and what's right is what God says is what's wrong and what's right. Not just what I feel about it. That's repentance. And again, you have there the hope that your sins may be blotted out, erased is another word for it. What hope there is in that. That times of refreshing may come. That's a great phrase as well. That's the result of forgiveness. And here, this is, there's two reasons I read from Isaiah 35. One is the, the lame shall leap like a deer. Right? That's, that's this man who was healed. But Isaiah 35, also, there's a ton of imagery in there about your dry, parched spirit finding streams flowing through and relief follows. Right? I was just talking with somebody about the, the weather this past week, how dry it's been. We didn't even have to mow our lawn yesterday because it just hasn't rained. It, it's dry. And, we're, and you start to long for rain after a while. And with repentance comes refreshment like that. There are times of, ah, the, the rain finally comes after two weeks or whatever it is. 
had a couple of family members yesterday um, working out outside most of the day, and it was pretty hot yesterday. And they came home, and one after another, they went and took a long, cool shower. And you know that feeling of refreshing after that. That's the idea here. That's the, the, what this beggar is feeling. The refreshing of, of healing of spiritual muscles that are bound in helplessness since our birth. So uh, Peter's exhorting them, calling them to this refreshing state of repentance. And he also points, verse 20 and 21, to the return of Jesus, right? That he may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive. So here he points ahead to the return of Christ. And here again, he's heading off objections, right? Question number two, everybody will ask, right as soon as Peter's done, is, well, where is this Jesus then? (laughs) Well, he's been taken up into heaven uh, until God sends him again. So Peter's answering all their possible objections. Well, uh, quickly, let's run through verse 22 to 26. There you have the the promise again given. Jesus, verse 22, he's the prophet of Deuteronomy. Uh, Verse 23, uh, it seems that Peter here quotes from Leviticus 23. And the point is that God is going to judge Israel if they don't return to Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets foretold. Uh, you could point to 2 Samuel 7 there. Uh, he mentions Samuel in verse 24. And that great chapter in 2 Samuel 7 where God promises David that one of his descendants will be on the throne forever. That's Jesus. That's who uh, Samuel was talking about to David. And here he is, this Jesus. This Jesus is your Messiah, verse 25. He was foretold by your fathers, your prophets. You're the sons of those prophets. So now he's been sent to you first. And here's one of the glorious things, I think. The the New Testament is all of a piece. It gives us the same message. And Romans 1 gives us that message in one way. It says that, that Paul was given the gospel, and it's for the Jews first and also for the Greeks. Right? Uh, Acts 1 verse 8 says the same thing. You're going to receive power, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, that's the Jews first, and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Same pattern. And that's what we have here in Acts. Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. This is all the gospel working among in Jerusalem, among the Jews. But we get to Acts 8, 9, 10, and then Paul will start taking the gospel to the Gentiles as well. But Jesus is your Messiah, Peter is saying to the Jews. And he quotes also verse 26. Uh, This one I just love. Uh, uh, Wait a minute, it's not verse 26. Now I can't find it. Uh, God, having raised up his servant, sent him, it is verse 26, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. No, that's not it. Give me a moment. Uh, verse 25 at the end. God made a covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You remember where God makes that promise? In your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's in Genesis 22, right after Abraham sacrifices Isaac. That's one of the most astounding passages to me. Because right at the point where the one's promised seed is almost snuffed out, and then God spares him and substitutes, 
Right at that moment, God says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth. You were worried about this one person, this one seed. And now because I've spared that son by giving you mine, all the nations will be blessed. It's astounding. So really, Jesus is the promised seed in which all families will be blessed. Well, so far, in two short sermons here in Acts, Peter has proclaimed Jesus Christ as Samuel's king, Isaiah's suffering servant, David's holy one, not left in the grave, ascended to God, Joel's pourer out of the spirit, Moses' prophet, Abraham's seed. There's just a ton packed in here. And what's the response? Quickly, let's close with this response from chapter 4. As they were speaking, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come to them. Here we see that Satan resists the kingdom of Christ. Uh, He continues working in the next few chapters. Chapters 4 through 6 are quite interesting in this regard. Persecution, compromise, and distraction are some of Satan's weapons. We'll see persecution in chapter 4 beginning here. We'll see compromise in the church in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And we'll see distraction in chapter 6 with the dispute over uh, serving the widows. So here we see the Sadducees are resisting the Holy Spirit. They can't stop the Spirit. We see in verse 4 the number of men came to about 5,000. That's, if you want to start adding up numbers, number 3,000 were added in the last chapter. So a little bit less than 2,000 probably are added here since we already started with 120 or so. So the, the church continues to grow. But there is opposition. Why do they arrest them? Why do they arrest them? Well, uh, I had two reasons. One of them was a bit of a stretch, so I guess I'll drop it. Um, there's, um, it's in verse one, they, or 2, sorry, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So let's just focus on the last part. But they're annoyed because they're proclaiming in Christ the resurrection. That's perfectly natural because the Sadducees denied the resurrection. So they are um, upset about that. There's an old joke about that that's, that says, you know why the Sadducees, uh, well, they deny the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see? That, that's, that's why. So it, I think um, it, what's going on here is this, this, is, um, this is old-fashioned repression of speech, right? Uh, the, it's like the Twitter executives repressing the What is a Woman documentary recently. Hey, get that off the front page. Get that out of the public space. We don't like that message. So they get rid of it. That's why they arrest them. Get them to stop talking. Get them out of the limelight. That's the, the uh, resistance that we get. We're going to see how the apostles respond to that next time. But for now, just a, a few things to close in application. One is worship Jesus. Remember this man who's healed, he goes into the temple after being able to walk for the first time in his life. There's something interesting about that. Our, our first thought might be, I need to call my wife. I need to tell my parents or my children. I need to go home. No, this man goes into the temple to worship. And he clings to those apostles. 
There's a, a certain natural affection that's fine and good, but we need to make sure that we are worshiping Jesus. Not even major events in life should take us from the worship of God with his people. If walking for the first time in your life doesn't keep this guy from worship, then should other things? So we need to keep meeting together. Worship Jesus. Second thing is know Jesus. The apostles say a lot about Jesus here. And the challenge for us is, can you? Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you? As 1 Peter 3 says, If a friend asks you about why you go to church, who Jesus is, and they let you talk for three to five minutes, could you summarize the facts about Jesus and the need to believe in him? That might make a great homeschool assignment for some teenagers in the room, by the way. That's something to think about, to write out, possibly. So know Jesus. Talk Jesus. We have Acts 1-8 coming true here. The apostles are witnesses for Christ, right in the temple itself. And the Spirit's going to create opportunities for you. And we need to take those. So Peter takes this opportunity. Uh, so talk Jesus. And, and finally, don't turn aside. Peter says, and there's an old song, a Sunday school song based on this, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. It's interesting to remember that Peter uh, and John, they say we don't have silver and gold to offer you. Christians don't have money to offer the world. And if we do, then the gospel gets corrupted and we, then we start to talk about rice Christians. People who only come to church because they're getting rice, they're getting money. That's a bad thing. But we don't have prestige or power to persuade people to join our cool club. That's not what the gospel's about. We have a crucified leader. He is now king of the world, of course. But what we give to people is the name of Jesus. So be careful not to pursue the things of this world alongside of your Christian life and to try to have it both ways. That Satan will use whatever idol you pursue, the money, the reputation, the security, whatever it is you need more than anything, Satan will use that to get you to betray your king, to compromise your witness. But if you give up your selfish ways, if you go the way of Jesus in repentance, there is hope. There is healing. There is refreshing. Some of us, we know that firsthand. There's a stark contrast in the way we used to live and the way we live now, now that we know Jesus. And our family sees it. And our friends see it. And that's one of those Pentecost kind of moments where, where it's undeniable that something has happened that they can't explain. But you can explain it. So let's be uh, zealous to do so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us this word, for reminding us again of the hope of the gospel, that you give times of refreshing as you draw us back to yourself in repentance and renewal. Thank you that we can see that once again here. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent in any ways that we are offending our Lord Jesus in our living, in our thinking, in our desires, in our uh, social interactions. Lord, help us to stay on your path and to experience those times of refreshing. 
that you hold out to us. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, who is the ever-living word, and we sing as he talks to us. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." Like the lame beggar who was healed, we are cripples in our ability to love God, to want to do what is right, to be kind to others. The power of Jesus and his spirit must work in us before we can stand and do his will. And when we do, the first place we go is further up and further in, walking, leaping, dancing, closer to God as we praise him. And the beggar came to the altar where Christ's sacrifice was pictured for him for you, for me. We were outside begging. Now we are inside eating from a better altar than that one. So come, for all things are now ready. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized, who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ, the body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.